Hello, everybody. This is How to Beat Your Kids at Board Games. You have Dan and John here talking about everybody's favorite checker games. Not checkers, just kidding. It's backgammon. <laughs> hey, guys, how's everyone doing? <laughs> Living out this quarantine life. Yeah, we are, uh, we are making the best of what we have. Coming to you guys from on a live Zoom call. So forgive us for any quality drops. Um, but to be honest, the recording equipment wasn't that good to begin with. So this is probably fine. <laughs> yeah, so we can get right into it. So backgammon, um, another game played with checkers. Uh, great to play, uh, play it with your grandpa um, while you're drinking coffee. Um, Dan, when do you play backgammon? Uh, I play it with my wife and my mother-in-law. Uh, and honestly, I do not have a great record. They're both pretty darn good. Um, but always fun. What, what makes it fun, I think, is uh, that it's a combination of luck and skill. So even if you're a bad player playing against a good player, you'll occasionally win and vice versa. Yeah, and, uh, you know, you might even be a better player than um, than your mother-in-law. You never know. <laughs> you can always just blame it on the luck. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah, so so backgammon is uh, it's actually kind of like chess. It's been played for a very long time. Uh, there's evidence of backgammon being played as far back as 3000 B.C. Um, in India and ancient Mesopotamia. So it's got a lot of history to it. Um, it's, you know, it's one of the few uh, racing games, racing dice games that's, that survived into the 21st century and it's still being played today. In fact, backgammon has seen uh, developments as early as, or as, as recently as 1960s. Um, in 1960s, uh, I think it was Prince Alexander Obolensky who decided mm -hmm. to bring backgammon back into the forefront with a ma major international tournament. Um, he brought together tons of players, the top players in the world, as well as uh, even royalty, because it, it was a popular game among royalty um, in Europe and uh, the Middle East, uh, for this tournament. And it kind of brought backgammon back into people's minds. Uh, so much so that uh, a certain uh, Playboy Mansion owner, Hugh Hefner, uh, got wildly into the game himself uh in fact it was known that hugh would have a uh, backgammon parties at his uh at the playboy mansion um so he was really into it um but yeah so this game's been around a long time and but that's not to say it's been extremely popular the whole time but it has seen a bit of a resurgence in the last 50 to 100 years so uh you know, there was the establishment of an international federation for backgammon recently. Um, I think it was 2009. So, really, this game is uh, it's come a long way, but it still has a long ways to go too. So, um, you know, be ready to see backgammon being played for many, many years to come. Uh, but yeah, so we, one of the oldest surviving games and an upper up and comer. Yeah, yeah, it's got it's got kind of best of both worlds. Very cool. And once again, uh, we, we apologize for any uh, sort of delays and talkovers that happen. That's just sort of a function of what we're doing. But we want to give you the best experience as our listeners. 
so one thing that we uh, are, are starting to do with this very episode is uh, we're actually going to uh, segment our episodes uh, sort of more intentionally. So uh, what we're going to do next is John and I are going to very quickly read through the rules of Backgammon, uh, give you a quick refresher if it's been a while since you've played, uh, real lightning round type stuff. Um, and then after that, we're going to get more into strategy. So if you feel great about the rules right now and you just want to skip over to strategy, uh, go right ahead, uh, hit that skip button. Otherwise, uh, here we go with the rules blitz. All righty, welcome to Rules Blitz, where we read off the rules really, really fast. Today we're doing backgammon. Here we go, Dan. All right, backgammon is a game for two players, played on a board consisting of 24 narrow triangles called points. The points are numbered from 1 to 24 in a C pattern. The six points on the tail of the C closest to you are your home board. Points on the opposite tail are your opponent's home board. The 12 points in between constitute the outer board. Each player has 15 checkers of its own color. The object of the game is to move all your checkers into your own home board and then bear them off. The first player to bear off all their checkers wins the game. Each turn, the turn player rolls two dice. That player then moves their checkers based on the dice. You can split up the roll between checkers or move the same checker twice. You cannot move a checker onto a space occupied by two or more opposing checkers. A point occupied by a single checker of either color is called a blot. If an opposing checker lands on your blot, the blot is hit and placed on the bar. Anytime you have one or more checkers on the bar, your first obligation is to enter those checkers onto the opposing home board. A checker is entered by moving it to an open point corresponding to one of the numbers on the rolled dice. If you have one or more checkers on the bar, you cannot move any in-play checkers until all of your checkers have been entered from the bar. Once you have moved all of your 15 checkers into your home board, you may commence bearing off. You bear off a checker by rolling a number that corresponds to the point on which the checker resides, and then removing that checker from the board. For example, rolling a six permits the player to remove a checker from the six points. All right, and that's what you need to know about backgammon. This has been Rules Blitz. All right, we hope you enjoyed our very first edition of Rules Blitz. Uh, so now we're going to talk strategy, and to kick us off, we're just going to go over um, some key terms real quick. So we're going to talk about the different types of games that exist first. Uh, so, John, here I see the race, I see a holding game, and I see in between. So you want to describe kind of what, uh, what a race is versus a holding game? Okay, sure. So, so a race uh, happens when all of your pieces get on the other side of the opponent's pieces, um, in a sentence. That might not be the easiest way to explain it, but um, basically once there's no chance for either player to hit the other player's pieces, uh, then the game becomes a race, and it's just a matter of who can get their, uh, get their checkers bared off first. There's no there's no real strategy other than um, how you bear off your checkers. Um, well, you got to work this, on your dice rolling, though. Yeah, exactly. You do have to work on your dice rolling. <laughs> yeah. So in contrast, a holding game uh, is something where instead of, uh, instead of all the checkers being past each other and there's almost no contact, uh, a holding game is, is characterized by the conflict of you or your opponent holding a point deep in the other player's board 
So when, when you say you make a point on your opponent's five, five point, um, so deep in their board, um, sometimes you have your best option is to leave that point there until the end of the game and try and snipe opposing pieces as they, as they enter their opponent's home board. And so that would be characteristic of a holding game. And now an in-between game is, is kind of just what I would use to describe when, uh, when the game is kind of in a mixed state and you're not, you're not necessarily just holding a point. There's a lot of hitting back and forth, um, but you might eventually settle into a holding game or at any moment you can break contact uh, and kind of get your pieces past each other with an advantage, then you can turn it into a race. But it's kind of just an in-between game. I think most in-between games eventually settle into a race or a holding game. Um, okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, so... But I think both of these uh, both of these types of games are really dependent on this concept called the pip count. And you want to explain to mm -hmm. us what a pip is, Dan? Well, I believe a gosh, I I I, I might get this wrong. Uh, a pip, I want to say, is the it's one of the spaces. Um, and so basically, if you have, let's say, you had five checkers on the board and one had 10 spaces to go and another had 12 and then you know i guess yeah let's say one had 10 to go and the other four had 12 to go then your pip count would be 12 times 4 plus 10 times 1 which is equal to 58 right yeah yeah that is that, that is that's correct. the idea right yeah that's what that's what the uh, the pip count is uh, but a pip specifically, okay. uh, just to just to clarify, a pip specifically is is the individual dot on a die. So when oh, you roll okay. a, when you roll a five, um, you have five pips on the face of the die. So that's where the name comes from. Um, mm -hmm. And the pip the pip count is a way of saying how many pips do you need to roll before you could bear off all of your checkers. Got it. And so, yes, pip count is, is in, it, count's important because it lets you know, it's like the simplest way to see if you're ahead in a game. Um, if your pip count's lower, that means you're, you're closer to bearing off all of your pieces. And so in that case, I think that a race um, would actually be favorable to you if you're ahead in the pip count. Um, hmm. Yeah. Right. Right, if you have more tips to roll before you get everybody home, you don't want to be in a race because that means on average you're going to lose um, unless you happen to roll much better tip counts than your opponent. Right, that's, that's not true. Yeah, so that's, this is kind of the idea behind the race. Um, know your pip count. And pip count is a hard thing to count. I mean, if you just think about it, there's 15 yeah. checkers. They're everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, if you're playing online, you can easily get a perfect pip count. But if you're just playing on a mm -hmm. board, and nobody got time to do all that math. Right. It's not worth it. But you can kind of keep this in mind. I, I think it's pretty easy to see, in general, who's ahead in pip count mm -hmm. when you're playing. Yeah. So now, can we? Can you talk a little more about um, 
why it's good to so, so I think I think the natural impulse among a lot of beginning players, myself included, uh, is to you know get your get your own checkers forward. Like if you can get your own checkers forward safely, then you should do that. But uh, as you somewhat alluded to, if you're behind in the tip count, you don't necessarily want to do this. You might want to move some of your more advanced checkers um, instead of moving forward um, checkers that are on a point that you're holding deep within your opponent's territory. Yeah, so, yeah, I think that the important thing to think about when uh, is that it, it's kind of similar to other games uh, like chess, uh, where if you're behind in the game, or if you're ahead in the game, you want to simplify the game. Like in chess, if you're ahead, you want to make more trades, right? It's kind of similar in backgammon. If you're if you're ahead, you want to simplify and get it get the game into a race. If you're behind, you want to make the game as complicated as possible, uh, so mm -hmm. to speak. That way, you give you give your opponent more chances to mess up, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, because just by pure luck, they're going to win most of the time if you just leave it up to chance, or if you just leave it up to a race. But if you can outplay them by playing a holding game where you keep your points in there, you keep your checkers in their home, in the back of the board, as opposed to in your front, you can make things a lot more complicated for your opponent as they try to um, return their own pieces to the home board. And so in this, you can, right. you can give yourself opportunities to, to bridge the gap in the pip count. Hmm. And Got also, it. So you want to put a thorn in their side. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Another thing to think about is that when, instead of, like you said, instead of moving your back pieces up, you, you'd be moving your more forward pieces into different positions. And the thing about that is that you can you can use that to build to build up your own home board uh, into a mm -hmm. powerful setup that can make it really hard for your opponent to come back if they ever uh, have to leave their pieces open to being hit. Right. So I think that is getting into another term that we wanted to talk about briefly, uh, if you think we're there already, but. Uh, Maybe we talk uh, about what a prime is. Yeah, that's a good time. Okay, so do you want to take this one? Uh, I will try. So uh, a prime is basically when you have um, you have your own checkers um, established on consecutive points. That's the simplest definition, right? So um, mm -hmm. you know, if I have checkers on the five point and also checkers on the six point, then, uh, you know, multiple checkers on each one, then that's a prime. And obviously that example doesn't seem very important, but when you talk about getting, you know, three or four um, spaces in a row occupied by your own checkers, then that means it makes it very difficult for your opponent to sort of leapfrog uh, your checkers because, um, you know, they can't land on a given space uh, if 
your checkers occupy it. So, um, you know, in the example I gave where you have, you're occupying four consecutive spaces, then that means your opponent needs to get a five or a six to pass any checkers over that prime. So you heavily reduce your opponent's ability to move forward in the game, and that can be very important, especially in the situation that John brought up where you know you get a capture late in the game and you have a very well established home board controlling most of the spaces uh, so that makes it very difficult for them to get um, back into the game after that capture right yeah and i think that the biggest the biggest or kind of a no uh a no-brainer once you realize it but the prime is something that can be really powerful but it's only powerful if there are opposing checkers behind it, mm, yep. <laughs> um, there's there's no point in making a prime to to stop no no checkers from passing. Uh, right. However, it can be a nice threat to have a prime set up, and that makes it so your opponent can't leave their pips their uh, sorry their checkers vulnerable. Mm. Right. So a, a prime can be right. as much of a as it is a. As it is an actual um, detriment to your opponent. Right. Okay. So difficult... do you want to talk about? Oh, sorry. Opening strategy. <laughs> or do you have one more thing? Yeah. To say? Let's keep going on prime. There's a few more things we can talk about. Um, cool. I, at least I, I know of, um, and it's that there are certain primes that are more attainable than others, and and they're also <laughs> stronger. Um, the best primes that I know of generally involve your own five and six points. Hmm. Uh, and so, and this is, yeah, this is kind of getting into a, a rules of thumb territory here, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say that, uh, yeah, so, so you want a prime to be somewhere where it's going to block a lot of things, but you also, it's also difficult to set up a prime anywhere other than on your own home board or, around your own home board if you just think about how the checkers move and where they're placed to begin with um mm -hmm. so not only the most common prime involves the five and the six point but it's also the most powerful one because it will completely shut your opponent down if they get uh, uh if they put a, get a checker put on the bar mm -hmm. so you can keep that in mind when you're trying to make your primes and know that that you really want to include um, these points that will make it that will make it really tough for your opponent to enter pawns back in or enter checkers back in and, and get those checkers out. Right. Yeah. So that's enough about primes. We we can move on to opening strategy now. Sure. Yeah. And and also one last thing about primes. I don't know. I don't know if you agree with this, but like the prime as a concept, I feel like is one of the most useful things uh, you can have and probably what separates, you know, a novice player from an intermediate player is, you know, just simply knowing the importance and how powerful a prime is. Then knowing, knowing how much to be, how well, like knowing how important it is to have one of your own, but also how scary mm -hmm. it is if your opponent looks like they're putting one together. Right. Cool. Yeah. So let's talk about opening. Okay, great. All right, so you've so, got a couple points down here. Yeah, so so my first point, uh, 
kind of ironically says, if you can make a point, do it. Um, when you're, when we're talking about the opening strategy, uh, I'm specifically talking about the very first roll of the game. So when you start a game of backgammon, both players roll one die, and whoever rolls higher uh, gets to go first. If you roll doubles, if you each roll the same uh, on, on your die, on your dice, then you roll again. So essentially, the first move of any game cannot be a, a doubles roll, uh, which means that this opening move is very, it can be very unique. There's only a few different patterns you can make with it. Um, see, but a lot of these opening moves, uh, if you can make a point that you didn't already have, it's just going to put you way ahead. For example, if you can make your own seven point, uh, such as on a, I think it's a six one roll, opening roll, where that you make the seven point and boom now you already have a, a, a three prime set up right. on your board so that's very strong um the only thing really stronger than that as far as making points goes would be uh, rolling something like a three one where you can make your own five point um on the first turn which is just fantastic it already puts you well ahead in the game mm -hmm. um, so if your opening roll lets you make a point uh, that you didn't already have, then it's probably it, it's almost never a mistake. Um, that I, I say almost never because uh, there are some rules that involve making your own two point, uh, which means putting two checkers on your on the two point right in front of uh, your the opposing checkers. Uh, and now that's you know it's not a bad move. In itself, but the problem is that I think it, when you have that roll, you've you've rolled a uh, something like a six four. Yeah. And there are much better things to do with a six four, um, which I'll get to, which we can get to later. Would you would you say the reason that it's? I mean, the reason that it's not too great is it's easy for those two checkers of your opponents that it's blocking to get past that two point? Right. So not only is it going to be easier for them to get past that two point uh, right off the bat, but also for any, any blocks that you hit later in the game, uh, they can easily enter past the two point. Hmm. So your, your two point essentially just serves to take one of their options away when they're trying to enter a pawn or checker. Mm -hmm. Sorry, <laughs> keep making that mistake. <laughs> but um, All right. a, two, a two point doesn't do much in the way of blocking any actual movement. So it's, it's not nearly as good as a, a four point or especially the five point because those are further back. Got it. Right. All right. So what if you can't make a point? Well, if you can make a point, I guess you just cry. <laughs> no, uh, there's definitely other good things to do. Um, one of the more underrated things that I, I only really found um, to be useful once I started looking into the game more and, and reading a lot about the game is the idea of bringing up builders. Um, now, builders are uh, essentially checkers, the most common way to bring up a builder is to move one of the checkers from, I believe it's the 13 point, 
uh, which is kind of in the one that starts off with five checkers and it's kind of in the middle of the board. If you can bring up a, a checker from, from that point, um, even if you leave it undefended or you leave it as a blot, it can still be very useful to have. Uh, not on that turn specifically, but it's great to have it for later turns when you're trying to make points in your own home board. Okay. Um, so I guess your opponent doesn't really have a lot of striking power if you move uh, one of your checkers from that 13 point because, you know, you're still probably moving that to your outer board and they just have their two backmost checkers, which, you know, more likely than not will not be able to capture that checker that you just moved from the 13 point on the next turn. Right. Right. Yeah, you're, you're really, you leave a blot on your first turn, which seems like, you know, obviously, like, why would you want to do that, right? But um, it's really actually not that likely to be hit, especially when you consider that the, that you already own the six point and your own eight point. Mm -hmm. So right. the roles you have to, the roles that your opponent would have to hit are very specific. Um, not only that, but what do they really gain from, from hitting you? Um, they haven't developed their home board at all. So you can enter pretty freely the next turn. Mm -hmm. um, you can just put your pawn back and then you have, uh, and then you're, you, you lose a little bit in the pip count race, but uh, you know, it's not the end of the world. The game's still fresh. So, so it's a, it's a <laughs> risk that's, I think, well worth taking. So bringing up builders is something you definitely want to think about when you're, when you're discussing your opening moves, uh, especially in the first move, but also in general, it's, it's good to have builders before your <laughs> opponent really builds up their own points in their home board to make it scary for you to get hit. So there's a couple more, and we can we'll talk about it more when we get uh, into the strategy of hitting and when to hit, um, when to leave your your checkers uh, vulnerable and when to protect them. We'll talk about that in more depth a little bit later. But uh, the other priorities for your opening moves should be to either get your back checkers um, out from the from your opponent's home board, or to do quote unquote safe moves, so moves they can move. Uh, a checker from a point you own to another point you also own. Um, so, yeah, so these two other concepts, um, I would say advancing your back checkers uh, seems like something that you, you've you been really interested in, Dan. I, I don't necessarily know enough. Like, I, I haven't played enough games where I focus on getting my back checkers out of the board, out of the home board. Um, mm -hmm. To like understand how powerful it is, um, but I, what I do know is that if you can get them out early, it's considered to be very powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, I know we're you know we're talking about what to do if you can't make a point, but I think since we're talking about these back checkers, um, another concept that would be useful to bring up right now is that of an advanced anchor. Um, oh, right, right. Yeah, so basically that, you know, an anchor, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is 
any point you uh, own in your opponent's home board, or, or would this be your own home board? Oh yeah, that sounds good to me. Your opponent's home board. Yeah, your opponent's home board. So right, like at the very beginning, you own the twenty-four point um, with those two checkers that start, you know, at the very, very back, and they have the longest to go for you. So being able to advance those, you know, even two or three spaces up, um, you know, has a huge um, has a huge advantage for future play in the game. You know, for for a lot of reasons that can be seen. You know, like it's not as easy to block you from uh, from exiting, uh, or you know, it's easier to uh, pick off the opponent's players. Um, you know, from the outer board as they come around, uh, your opponent's checkers, that is. Mm -hmm. But, you know, even, I think there's probably even some benefits that aren't so easy to see. Uh, but, you know, if you look at, if you look at any sort of computer analyzing backgammon positions, uh, you know, all other things being equal, you're just much better off in terms of your chances to win if you can advance that uh, anchor two or three or four spaces. And of course, if you can, if you can move one on your first move, um, you know, even though you might be exposing yourself, uh, you know, you give yourself a better chance to build it. And like, if you get taken, then, you know, like you said, it's fine because it's early in the game and those were the least advanced of your checkers anyway. It's a kind of low risk, high reward play. Right. Not only that, but if your if your opponent decides to hit one of your uh, hit hit a uh, checker in their own home board, they better be able to make a point on that same right. on that same. <laughs> Otherwise, you can just re-enter your your checker immediately, uh, capturing one of their most advanced checkers. So it's a it's mm -hmm. a really oftentimes it's just the worst thing they can do to hit. Um, to hit one of the checkers that you moved up on your first turn. Mm -hmm. So in this in this case, it's like it's actually somewhat safe to just kind of advance your back checkers uh, a little bit to try and get them up to a a place where you'd like uh, an advanced anchor. It's going to be really hard for your opponent to hit back. You hit the nail on the head as far as why you want to advance your back checkers. You you really you want the opportunity to make your opponent's five point because you can kind of just you kind of you know have control over your opponent in that position you can snipe mm -hmm. their checkers as they come in they can't really they might have trouble entering or getting their their checkers into their own home board because you're blocking a spot if you ever get a piece taken for, uh, uh, sorry if you ever get a checker put on the bar then you can re-enter it right back onto the five point or something similar, right back onto your anchor, um, and and that's just really nice to have. Uh, you can't really mm -hmm. ever get trapped like that. Cool. All okay. right. Should we move to rules of thumb? Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So so we've okay, already so kind of gone into the the advantage of the five or the the five point or dip and the opponent's five, which is also technically the twenty point for you, um, but we'll refer to it as the opponent's five. Um, 
and this point is is uh, far and away the most important point in the game. Um, well, and I say point, but there's really two of them, uh, and that's just because yeah, it's it's symmetric. So for each player, these these two points are the most important points. So Dan, what do you what do you think about the five points? I mean, I I think we've talked a lot about it. Really, like it it you know depending on which direction you're looking, you know, you either you either block your opponent from making advances out of your home, uh, out of their own home board or out of your home board. I, I'm mixing that up a lot, but I hope you know what I mean. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or or you give yourself a nice uh, a nice outpost to uh, snipe your opponent's checkers as they come around. Um, you know, so so basically, whether you're ahead or behind in the game, uh, it can be a really nice tactical uh, point to have. It's it's just you know it's a, it's another example of just being a thorn in the side of your opponent, even if they're well ahead of you. Right, the game can always kind of fall apart <laughs> if you have mm -hmm. their five points. Right. If they if they roll really bad, then they could end up having to leave a checker exposed, and boom, you're back in the game. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and and we can kind of talk about it. The five point because we've got the five point, the five point. What about the six point? What about the four point? Um, and these are again, they're not bad points. You really would like to have them too, uh, but it's it's I think it's about priorities. Um, and why why the why is the five point better than the six point? Well, simply put, it's just it's in the perfect spot, whereas the six point is, you know, one spot off. It's just mm. a little bit too. It's just a little bit too far out, as far as on the on the defensive side. When you are trying to keep your opponent's checkers in your home board, it gives your opponent a little bit too much room if you only have the six point. Yes. I actually might take that one back. <laughs> um, it, it's kind of hard to say why the six point is that much is 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 worse. Um, I can say I can tell you from the point of view of having your opponent's six point. I know why it's worse. Um, it's because it's a little bit easier for your opponent's checkers to leapfrog in from their thirteen point. Okay. Yeah. So. It, it's not. It's just. It's not as powerful because it, they the opponent can have a little bit more leeway. It's getting getting past your six point into their home board. Mm -hmm. Got that. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And again, um, you know, some of the concepts we're talking about. Maybe if it's even if it's not clear um, immediately why it's better. Um, you know, there is this excellent website that goes through a lot of examples. Um, and, if you know, if you just look at any computer simulations in terms of, like, this position exists and how good is this position relative to this position, um, you know, it just becomes very clear that the five point is better. Um, mm -hmm. we, we can include um, a link to this website, that checker play website. Uh, in the show notes for people to go take a look at. Yeah, 
Yeah, there are actually there are several good online resources for backgammon, which is great to help you learn the game. In addition to our lovely podcast, uh, and so we'll mm-hmm. be including links to all of the resources that we've used in putting this together, um, because they've certainly helped us out. Um, you know, I mean, we still are a bunch of backgammon chumps, but uh, at least now we've done some reading. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it will be a while before we actually get to play backgammon i'm sure <laughs> right yeah yeah but, it's uh you know playing board games in person might not be the uh the most smart thing due to uh all the complications arising from covid19 but uh thanks to online games and thanks to um online resources that doesn't mean you can't still play and also get better at these games and oh, yeah. learn how to beat so you want to make your quarantine productive? Online backgammon. Or just listen to this podcast. Or just listen to this podcast. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, we can, so uh, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, moving on, we'll talk about the bar. Moving on, yes. Let's talk about the bar. Bar. <laughs> so, uh, why is the bar such a big deal so having a point on the bar um i mean i feel like when you first when you play your first game of backgammon you know like whenever you're playing a board game and someone captures your piece or something like that you mm-hmm. tend to get the sense that it's a bad thing <laughs> it just has, has a negative connotation to it um and you may even when you're first playing backgammon you realize okay now it's checkers all the way back at the start of the board so that sucks. <laughs> now I have to get it all the way back around. So immediately that's um, a big deal with, with having a point on the bar is that, it, is that you probably lost or you definitely lost uh, some pip counts. Your pip count went up when, you're, when your piece was put on the bar. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the immediate, the immediate um, thing that you can notice. The problem with the bar is that that's not all. Um, there's also an incredible positional component to it where sometimes being put on the bar you might even prefer it um, but other but most of the time it can put you in a very scary position and that just depends on how your opponent has developed their home board so you can uh, kind of talk a little bit more about that Dan. Sure so I mean like we said in the rules if you're on the bar if you have at least one checker on the bar and you can't move everything that you have on the bar back into play, you can't make any moves. So, you know, if your opponent has a six prime, like, you know, this, this is the absolute worst example. And I mean, you've, you've basically lost if this is the case, but if your opponent has a six prime on uh, their own home board and you're on the bar, you literally can't get it. You have to skip an entire turn and you probably have to skip multiple turns, you know, as they keep entering their, uh, their checkers into the, or yeah, they keep bearing off their checkers. Uh, so, I mean, I think the, uh, a backgammon, what a backgammon is, 
um, you know, or one of those um, one of those terms, um, you know, of the different ways that you can lose is, you know, your opponent has bared off everything and you still have someone on the bar. I may or may not be correct on that, but that's a that's the backgammon. Yeah, yeah, that's a backgammon. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I mean, it can cause real problems. I mean, it it also, like you said, can be an asset. So let's say your opponent you know, is starting to bear off checkers and like, you know, they, they're forced to leave one open and you happen to have a guy on the bar and then you just snipe the one that, um, that they left open and now it has to go all the way back around the board. You know, that might be a good thing. But, you know, for the most part, I think the later in the game that you get push to the bar, the worse it tends to be for you because, you know, the more established your opponent can be, you know, with setting up their prime around their own home board. And I think another thing that I that I hate about having my pieces on the bar is that you have to use one of your die rolls to put them back on, which means that you only have one roll to work with. Um, so for example, your then if your opponent has their opponent can leave a block that's you know for example seven points away from your nearest checker and it's completely safe because you can't hit it you have to enter your piece from the bar next turn um overall you just you become a lot less likely to be threatening to your opponent because you have to use one of your moves to to put your checker back on the board at least well and this is assuming you only have one on the bar if you have two if you have two checkers on the bar, then unless you're rolling doubles, you're you're really not doing anything that turn, and your opponent can play as reckless as they want, um, mm -hmm. which is which is huge because in backgammon taking a risk that pays off can can really set you ahead in the game. Um, often it's just right. that there's a there's really big risks like the the leaving your checkers blotted. Um, can have such huge negative consequences that uh, it can, you know, keep people from taking risks. But when they have the opportunity to, mm -hmm. they can just get way too far ahead in the game. Right. And so let leaving your pieces on the bar is just the easiest way to let your opponent do whatever they want. Yeah. It's, so I mean, it's not just about like what you can't do because you're on the bar. It's also it, I. I mean, from hearing everything you said, it seems like it's much more about what your opponent can get away with doing because you're on the bar. Yeah, yeah, I would say that's that's a good way to put it. Um, it's it's a it's like a concept that you and I both learned about recently uh, mm. called duplication, where you know, in some in some cases, you may want to avoid risk altogether, right? You might want to leave your checkers completely protected. Um, but sometimes um, you have to leave a checker unprotected and say your opponent can reach that checker with a, the roll of a four. Um, and say, so now that you have that checker unprotected, it really doesn't hurt you too much to leave other checkers unprotected um, that can also be reached with a four. And so, this kind of concept can apply to the bar because say your opponent can only uh, can only enter a pawn with like a, a roll of a three or a two or something like that. Um, but then you can put 
you can put your pieces uh, safely two or three uh, points away from your opponent's pieces and know that, you know, even if they roll a two or a three, they're, uh, they're unlikely to be able to hit you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's a real pain in the butt. And, of course, every yeah. time, even if, even if your uh, opponent only has two or three points made in their own home board, there's still a good chance that you just don't get to move that turn because right. you didn't roll the, the right number to enter your pawn, your checker. Mm-hmm. Uh, totally nothing conceived. more frustrating. Yep, nothing more frustrating than losing turns just because you didn't roll a three, a four, or a six. Um, yeah, definitely. You know, it, it seems so easy, and, and statistically, you're not, you know, you're not that unlikely to, to roll it. But, um, you know. Right. It's a game of luck. It happens. And, yeah, it happens. It happens a lot because you roll a lot each game. Yeah, and it happens more than you as a human will expect it to happen. So, you know, I have a 33% chance of not getting in, you know, like, and you roll it and you don't get in, you feel like, oh, that's so, you know, that's, that's BS. Uh, like that shouldn't have happened. But, you know, in reality, we expect it to happen a lot less than it actually does. Right. When you talk about we see like less than 50%. We we sort of just mm-hmm. assume that we're entitled to whatever, you know, to the outcome yeah, exactly. that we want. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, yeah. 33% yeah. is a so, pretty solid chance of losing a turn. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, and that's, so I think, uh, is, that, is that it on the bar, do you think? Yeah, yeah, I think, I think I'm good. Yeah. Okay, so I think the next topic sort of dovetails with this nicely, but, um, you know, since we talk about, we just talked about the bar, we should also talk about when to hit. So, like, when to put your opponent on the bar, you know, perhaps when is it worth it to leave your own checker vulnerable after hitting your opponent onto the bar? Uh, and the dynamics there. So uh, do you want to kick this off? Yeah, sure. I can talk about it. So this is one of those concepts that I think is what really is going to differentiate an experienced player from a beginner. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's to say that you, for a lot of this, you have to learn how to judge each situation a little bit differently. So all we can do is, again, give you some rules of thumb. And so when you're, considering whether to hit your opponent's checker, um, there are a few things you want to consider. One, how many tips is it going to set them back? Two, how, uh, how and, and two, I think it's just one, I think it's just two actually, to be honest. Um, two, how is your home board developed? Um, mm. Do you have points on your home board or do you have blocks on your home board? Um, I mean, blocks on your home board would make it pretty, pretty, uh, you'd be taking your life into your own hands by hitting an opponent's checker while you have a block. Um, even close to your home board, honestly, say it's like the seven point, having a block there would be pretty risky. Um, mm-hmm. And so you have to consider this uh, when, you're, when you're thinking about hitting someone. I guess the, the last thing I would consider is whether your opponent 
has any checkers in your home board as well. Because if, if your opponent already has one checker in, um, in your home board, then you're kind of giving them the opportunity to make a point, make an advanced anchor in your home board mm. by hitting them. Yeah, that's a good so point. So it could actually backfire. It could actually backfire on you to hit them because then you have to deal with this point potentially that that you wouldn't have had to worry about otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so obviously, I think that like the kind of the pip count. The, if you're going to hit a piece that's, uh, you know, really well developed on your opponent's side and set them back a ton of tips, then it might be worth it to allow them to kind of set up a point in your home board just because it helps you so much in, in the pip count area. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is kind of, you know, from, from my perspective, it's where uh, play style and experience come in. Because you, you have yeah. to judge, like, these three things and so what do you what do you think about when you're deciding when to hit yeah I think for the most part um I've always thought about hip count um you know basically if I can use one of my not so far advanced checkers and take one of my opponent's checkers close to the home board I almost always do it um you know obviously like, you know, I, I look at my home board to, you know, I think it's, it's usually pretty unlikely that I have, um, you know, vulnerable checkers in my own home board that would get, uh, that could get taken out uh, by a bad uh, entry roll. But, um, you know, I've, I've always looked at that to, you know, I also weigh the options against, you know, what else I have the opportunity of doing you know, and I think we'll talk more about this later too, on like you know choosing between two good options. But you know, if I if I have a, a chance to like send my opponent to the bar, but like I also have a chance to you know shore up the five point, like nine times out of ten, I'm probably going to choose shore up the five point because you know that's that's a better strategic move. Um, you know. That's kind of what goes through my head. Yeah, I think I think that's the, that's a good way to put it. The opportunity cost is is a big deal um, because sometimes it just will easily be the best move you have, but other times you'll be considering whether to hit a piece or whether to make a point, or even like whether to make a run with one of your um, uh, one of the checkers in 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 your backfield, right? So there's always you know, as in a lot of these games, there's always a ton to consider. Mm-hmm. But as we've talked about before, putting your opponent on the bar puts yourself generally in a very nice position to do a lot more. Things. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, you said it before, but it's, this is another one of the things that separates, you know, novices from more experienced players is I feel like as a novice, my gut instinct was always, ha I can take you, so I'm going to take you, you know, because I, because I got a good role or whatever, and that impulse to take is just so strong <laughs> that, uh, but, you know, once you've, once you've played a little more and, you know, you realize that that's not the object of the game, 
uh, right. then, you know, you have, you have much more of a big picture look at things. Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly a very fun and advantageous oh, yeah. thing to do. Um, but it's not, it's not always the right answer. Right. There are, you know, there are circumstances in which you, you wouldn't. Um, and the converse of this question is when to leave your own checkers hanging. Mm -hmm. So when do you think, when do you think it's okay to just leave a checker um, as a blot? When your opponent has two checkers on the bar. <laughs> well, that's certainly that's certainly an easy way to do it. Uh, easy decision. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, yeah, but what if they that. roll? What if they roll double fours, Dan, and then they and they take your piece anyway? Oh, checkmate. Um, <laughs> well, um, you know, I think. Yeah, this is this is something that I, you know, thought about a lot. Um, like in sort of a a non-polished way when I play too, but I, I think about like, number one, like simply how likely is it that my opponent will, will make a roll that will allow them to take this checker. Um, but then I also, I also think about like, would it even be a good idea for them to take this checker if they have the opportunity to, you know, so like, some of the things we've talked about already, like if they have a weak home board with a couple blocks in it, then like I actually want them to take me because then I'll, you know, probably be able to screw to screw them up in some way, um, you know. And I think well, the best the best thing for them to do in that case would be to not take me. So that means that I'm safe by doing that. Um, so you know, we've talked a lot, um, some about uh, about those kinds of situations. Uh, but yeah, I, I kind of look at it from my opponent's point of view. Yeah, okay. Got it. I, th I think definitely knowing knowing whether you're going to get hit or like whether you should expect to get hit and what the consequences would be has got to be the biggest factor. Uh, well, I, yeah, probably the biggest factor in, in, in like deciding to leave a piece hanging. Um, the other factor is is just under, is weighing the first part against how much you can actually gain from leaving it hanging. Um, right. And sometimes sometimes it doesn't, you know, this is where the game, the chance element is going to come in a lot. And you're going to have probably a lot of friends who are playing you and they see you leave a piece vulnerable. They're going to say, oh, that's, that's so dumb. I'm just going to take you. And then, you know, honestly, maybe they do because um, they got the right role. But it's one of those things where in the long run, you actually gain a lot from having that pawn or that checker up. Um, they might, you know, you, you get, get gloated on, and, uh, you know, your opponent might brag okay. about being a player, right? <laughs> Can you just explain um, real quick about what you mean by the long run? Yeah, okay. So the long run, I'm thinking like in the next two or three turns with that checker that you left hanging, you hope to do something really good with it. Um, for example, to make a point in your own home board is, is the easiest one that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So you you need to have like a good plan with the checker, maybe. Maybe that's like the easiest yeah. Way. Well, I think so like and I and I think the the builder concept you brought up before is a good example of this. You know, like when you can't get a point on that first roll, you you move something from that thirteen point in the hopes that like in subsequent rolls you might be able to match that and get a point, establish a point. You know, and you're balancing that against well, it's really not too likely that you know they're going to roll a double four and um and capture you on the first turn you know so like you said it's a it's a calculated risk you know you weigh risk against reward and also like you said sometimes it's not going to pan out sometimes your opponent's going to get exactly the role they need uh but that does not mean that it was not a good decision to begin with and um you know where i thought you were going when you said the long run is you know, if you were hypothetically to play a thousand games in a row and each game you made this decision that you're about to make, um, you know, 600 out of those a thousand times you would win and maybe 400 out of the times you would lose. But, you know, it still means that this is the best way forward. Right. Yeah, it's definitely a game influenced by the law of large numbers mm -hmm. and so and the that's long part of what run, makes it addicting yeah yeah exactly what makes it addicting is that you can you can get absolutely trashed by someone who's you know not a great player but you can also beat someone who's a great player um yeah and it's kind of good it feels kind of good to have that sort of ability to um always feel like you're in a game um, yeah. whereas, and it was something and like, the game is never truly over until right. it's over. That, yeah, the game's never over until it's over. And also, the, I mean, the, the simple fact is that no two games are the same. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I, I should have pulled up this number, but I think there's there's been some calculation on the <laughs> amount of possible board states in backgammon. Mm -hmm. It's it's an incredible. <laughs> Yeah, it is. And I, mean, I think it's it's like well past the trillions or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, yeah. So no, you're you're not going to play two two games that go the same way. It just it's just not how it's going to go. Yeah. No, you uh, but, you know, that doesn't yeah, mean and that. So that means when you're when your play doesn't work out exactly like you thought it would, that doesn't mean it's the wrong play. On the other yeah, hand, exactly. if your play works out, if your if your risk works out perfectly, that doesn't mean doesn't mean you should have taken it. Right. All right. So speaking of risk taking in general, um, I think we should touch on what this means when you're ahead versus when you're behind. You know, when when you're behind, you have more to gain and more to lose. Um, you know, so if a gamble, you know, if a if a gamble, you know, maybe it ha maybe you have a negative expected value, but you're already behind anyway, and so, you know, maybe there's a 20% chance that you establish this great point in your opponent's uh, home board the next turn, and there's like a 90% chance that they're able to take you, 
but you're already so far behind that it doesn't make sense to just play it safe uh, and you go with the gamble. But, you know, the same kind of moves if you're way ahead would just be idiotic. So, I mean, that's it's just another dimension of weighing risk and reward. Right. I think we actually touched on a very similar concept in our Monopoly podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we did. Where we talk about, we talk about how um, you have to look at paths to winning. Um, not yes. just paths to not just paths to looking good in the short term, um, mm-hmm. and so yeah, I think I think you're right that in in backgammon when you're losing, you have to do the moves that can actually get you a win, um, right. not the moves like even in the best case I'm still even in the best case I'm still um, losing this game unless I roll perfect from yeah. here on out. Um, yeah, like. I don't care if you lose by five checkers or 10 checkers, you know, you're still going to lose. But if you have a one one hundredth chance of winning by one checker and a 99% chance of losing by, I guess you only have 15. So let's say 13 checkers, you should definitely take the risk in that scenario. Right. Yeah. And we, we can talk a little bit about, there, there's one situation in which that that argument kind of uh, um, isn't true in backgammon specifically because you, yeah. you can't actually you can actually double lose in backgammon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so to speak, you can get gammoned and you can get backgammon. Um, right. But so the, we'll talk about that in a little bit though. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I yeah. I, yeah. I, I think another thing another thing to remember is that this is obviously going to go in the other way, right? So. If you find yourself ahead in a backgammon game, um, I mean, heck, if you're ahead in the pip count, then why would you ever risk? Uh, why would you ever risk getting hit if you didn't have to? Mm-hmm. Um, you might as well just play it safe and play it towards a race. Get your pieces out of harm's way as much as you can. Don't worry too much about attacking your opponent's pieces because you're already ahead. Um, right. Just kind of coast the game out if you happen to find yourself in a good position if you find yourself in a bad position you're looking for every opportunity in which it might go wrong for your opponent even if it's just a small chance right yeah don't don't get greedy don't try to win by a hundred doesn't matter right yeah yeah i think i think that's like a big deal is that you really when you're ahead they have to roll really well to get back in it yeah if you if you play perfectly um even if your roles are like subpar you know your opponent still has the role above par to beat you most times Mm -hmm. exactly so we should probably wrap it up pretty quick but what we have left is so we have tough calls duplication and diversification, and then we're getting into the doubling rules, which we wanted to touch on really quick. So um, I'll, I'll just briefly touch on diversification, um, and then we can get to the other two, and then we'll wrap up. So, Sounds um, good. Yeah, so like, like you said, uh, duplication is when um, you want to give 
your opponent, you know, basically your opponent needs one role to do two or more different things, so they can't do them all at once. Um, diversification is the opposite, uh, in which you sort of craft your own board so that uh, many different kinds of roles will do something good for you. Um, even maybe the same thing or, or maybe multiple good things, uh, you know, but regardless, to the extent that you can give yourself options like that, oh, well, if, if I roll a seven, I can take here. If I roll an eight, I can set up this five point. Or if I roll a 13, then I can, you know, et cetera. I, you can't roll a 13. That was stupid. But yeah, I was going uh, to say, I was like, yeah, we've been, we haven't been talking for that long, have we? Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, although, yeah, although that, that one dude, that one dude who had this as his epigram could have rolled a 13. But, right. Oh, yeah, that was, yeah. that was a story. Maybe we can link the story to it. Essentially, it goes that a, a Byzantine emperor was playing a game of backgammon or a variant of backgammon where you threw three, um, three dice instead of two. And in one of his games, he rolled a set of three dice that was so bad that it forced him to leave eight blots on his own board. Yeah. And he was so, his, his luck was so bad in this game that the game ended up making it onto his epigram. <laughs> so this game yeah. is engraved forever that this that this emperor played. Um, now, I don't really know why he would engrave, as an emperor, he would engrave a game with him that probably yeah. ended with him losing. Losing but, uh, terribly. <laughs> <laughs> maybe he was a humble emperor. Maybe, so. maybe. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, that's the idea of diversification. I don't think I have any specific examples, but just as a concept, you should keep that in mind. Yeah, um, I, I think the easiest way to think of it is just that this is why you bring up a builder, mm -hmm. um, because it diversifies your board a bit and lets you make plays off of a lot more roles. Right. Yeah, that's the strength okay. of a builder. Sure, sure. Okay, so tough calls. You know, I have I have a chance to establish the five point on my opponent's home board, you know, or I can capture, or I can advance my anchor, you know, how do I make the decision on what to do? And spoiler alert, there's no one answer. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I think what's important is to know kind of what to consider when you're making these tough calls. And so, mm -hmm. Like I kind of brought up with the uh, when to hit when we were talking earlier, you know, you, you want to consider a few different things. These are these are what you want to consider. One again, the fifth count is the main one. Um, if you're ahead, you choose maybe the more defensive option, such as making a point as opposed to going for an aggressive take. Um, so that that you know the the pip count can can inform you on how aggressive you should be between two different good options. Um, but other things to consider would be it's going to be looking at your own board position, looking at which one fits in better. Like, are you looking, is it looking like you're going to have to play a holding game or is it looking like you might be able to set up a prime? Uh, mm -hmm. You kind of have to look 10 steps ahead, which you can't really do in backgammon, but um, you have to look into the future a, a little bit and see like, how do I see this game playing out? You know, do I want to, 
do I, do I, you want to split your goals? Do you want to like go for a half aggressive option or like when you generally were playing a defensive game? Maybe not. Maybe you just stick to playing defensive and that's how you make your decision. Uh, mm. Yeah. Cool. That, that's what they usually do. I mean, again, we're not the best people to ask necessarily because we're, we're uh, you know, relatively inexperienced, but these are kind yeah. of things I can do. Yeah. And again, if you want more um, in-depth analysis and specific positions, uh, you know, we will have some good links in the show, in the show notes to go. There's this website called checkerplay.com, uh, which is very thorough, um, has a lot of good positions to go through. All right, let's talk about doubling. Uh, the rules, um, you know, when to offer, when to accept. Uh, this will be really quick, but, you know, we can't talk about backgammon without at least touching on the idea of the doubling cube. So, um, so John, I was wondering if you could go through more of maybe how it got started and um, sort of the mechanics of it. Gotcha. Yeah, so this won't be a rules blitz, but it'll be sort of a mini blitz. Doubling mm -hmm. was started in, it was actually invented in the 1920s. It wasn't added to the game um, until relatively recently um, in New York gambling clubs. And so uh, the doubling cube uh, is something that you use when you're, when you're playing match play. So you're not just playing uh, one game of backgammon, but you're playing say to like a best of five, right? Um, or actually what they would say with the doubling cube is you play, for example, to 10 points. Um, then with the doubling cube, each game starts off as counting as one point. So if you win that game, you get the point and it's the first person to 10 points. Now that seems like a lot of points. However, before any player uh, starts their turn and makes their roll, uh, they can offer the doubling cube to their opponent. So the doubling cube starts off at one, so signaling one point for the game. Now the first time you offer the doubling cube, it flips to two. So the game would now be worth two points if the opponent accepts the doubling cube. Um, they can either choose to accept it, and now the game is worth two points, or they can say, nah, -uh, I don't want to play this game for twice the stakes. I just forfeit. Those are the only two options. Now later in the game, if the position changes or whatever, um, the opponent who accepted the cube can offer it back and double it again, so the stakes are even higher, four instead of two. And this can go on and on. I think the, there's a limit, upper limit, to the number of the stakes, I think, is 32, but... Um, I think it's 64, actually. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Oh, right, okay, the, the dice starts at two, huh? And then the 64, not starts at one. Yeah. Okay, but you get the gist. So, basically... Yeah. Um, if you accept the doubling cube, the game's worth twice as much. And if you refuse it, you have to forfeit immediately. And so this uh, adds this crazy um, ability or ability of a player to get a win simply off of judging the board correctly, or um, even get more points out of their opponent simply by by knowing the board state and knowing whether they have the advantage. Yeah. So I mean, it seems to me like. Um, you know, obviously you want to offer when you are ahead, um, you know, solidly mm -hmm. ahead, I would say. And you'd want to accept when you think it's really unlikely to win. Um, and I think 
you know, I think in terms of when to offer what and what you should be thinking about, I'm assuming this is most of the same things we've been talking about, you know, talking about tip count, talking about like, you know, potential for crimes, talking about holding the holding down the five, maybe six point. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, just like assessing you know taking inventory of uh of what you have going for you and uh you know making making an informed decision now i i have no idea how to like value and weight all of these things and i don't know if you do or if we're going to get into that here no yeah i the thing is weighting all those things um is something that's best left to a simulator <laughs> so yeah for sure Really, I think what's important to know, uh, and another rule I forgot to mention is that um, if you manage to gammon your opponent in match play, then the stakes of the game are automatically doubled, so you get two points instead of one in a normal game. And if you backgammon your opponent, uh, then I believe you get four times the stakes, although backgammon is extremely rare. So, um, But the gammon is relevant because, uh, for example, if you, if you get to be really ahead in a game, um, then it just makes sense for you to offer a doubling cube in general um, because you'd rather have them forfeit the game now than leave it up to chance leave it up to bad luck to screw you right and so um the only thing is if you're so far ahead that you think you'll gammon it actually might not be in your best interest to uh to offer the cube um so that's one thing to consider is, is how, how far ahead are you like really, really, really far ahead to where there's no way they could come back. Um, the, the only difference is whether you gammon them, you'll gammon them or not. And I would say you don't sure. even need to offer the cube, right? Yeah. So really quick, other, a, gammon is, a gammon is when you've bared off all of your checkers and your opponent still has some on the outer board. Is that right? No, uh, your opponent hasn't bared off a single checker. Oh, got it. Okay. Yeah. Um, they can, because they could have bared off a checker earlier and then you hit a checker or something like that. Um, yeah. Gammon is that they don't have a single checker bared off, and backgammon is that they have a checker on the bar. Got it. Right. Yeah. As for, as for accepting and offering the die in more even situations, um, I think when, especially in, in the case of that we're kind of, we're trying to teach people who are, you know, not playing with experts, right? So when you're playing with mm -hmm. someone and you can offer the doubling cube to kind of assert that your position is better. Um, mm -hmm. And it's also important to remember, to remember your fundamentals and to look at the board whenever someone offers you a cube um, and say, you know, actually, I don't really think my position is that bad. Uh, mm -hmm. I'll take, I'll take that cube. Um, Definitely. I think it's, it's like, it's interesting to think about when to deny the cube as opposed to like when to offer it. Like what, like when not to accept the cube is more complicated because if you don't accept it, then you automatically lose one point. But if you accept it, then you have like a percent chance of losing two points or getting two points down, right? Uh, right. And so if you think that 
you know, the game is around 50-50, then it's just makes sense for you to play it out, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you think it's even like 55-45 in their favor, you might still want to play it out because, you know, if you just think you're a little bit better player than them, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or, yeah. you know, or if you're just feeling lucky, it, it, it's not always the right call to just fold when you're in a rough position. This back end right. has a lot of chance in it. A lot of chance um, involved. Yeah. When, when you're ahead, though, I think it's generally a good, I mean, I don't know. I, you know, it, I think it's just not a bad call. Um, if you're more mm-hmm. than, if it's like 55, 45, then, you know, 55% chance of you winning, then I think it's up to you. It's a judgment call. If you like to play aggressive, um, I think it's justified either way. Uh, yeah. But I think you have to wait till there's some sort of uh, obvious shift in the board or obvious shift in, in the state and who's likely to win. Um, offering it willy-nilly is, seems like a bad idea. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Well, I think that's it. Um, yeah, that about wraps it up. But, yeah, this was this was fun. Um, thank you all for listening and being patient. And uh, we will see you next time. And the what we will talk about is to be determined. Uh, but stay tuned for the next episode, and we'll see you then. Yeah, this has been How to Beat Your Kids at Board Games. Bye.